Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 4th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Politics in Northern Ireland is once again in a state of disarray. Today marks the end of what has been the privilege of my lifetime to serve as the First Minister of Northern Ireland. Paul Given resigning as First Minister, leaving the Stormont Assembly rudderless and deadlocked since midnight. The reason, the DUP's opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol under international law allowing for Brexit. The delicate balance created by the Belfast and St Andrews agreements has been impacted by the agreement made by the United Kingdom government and the European Union, which created the Northern Ireland Protocol. The King is dead. Long live the King. A turn of phrase that in the case of Paul Given's resignation may not apply. It could be a case of the King is dead. The King is dead. The thing is, Paul Given, the youngest First Minister so far, might also be remembered as the last First Minister. Power sharing in Northern Ireland is now in question. Elections may take place earlier than scheduled in May, but the DUP is boxed into a corner. In September, its leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, drew a line in the sand. At that time, I had steps that this party would take. I warned that as leader of the DUP, I was not prepared to lend my hand to a protocol which so fundamentally undermines the union and the economic integrity of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland's position within it. Those remarks for a leader of a unionist party ahead of elections might seem unremarkable, but the problem Donaldson seems to have is that now he's demanding what seems to be the impossible. Now is the moment to send a clear signal that we want Stormont free from the long shadows of the protocol. The Irish Sea border must go. For all our citizens, we ask for nothing more than arrangements that fully respect Northern Ireland's place as a constituent and integral part of the United Kingdom. Geoffrey Donaldson, let's go to Belfast. Peter McVerry is a journalist with our wireless sister station, U105. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. I suppose moves by the DUP have been a long time in the coming, but it's been a whirlwind 24 hours at that. 
Absolutely. And as you said there, Michael, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson did outline as far back as September the measures that he would be minded to take if the DUP didn't feel that they were getting anywhere with their demands on Brexit, and in particular the Northern Ireland Protocol. But what did surprise people probably was the speed of it. When we had earlier this week the Agriculture Minister, Edwin Poots, announcing that he'd instructed his permanent secretary to stop checks at the ports. Uh, we thought that that might last maybe for a week or so, and then suddenly the next morning we had the speculation that Paul Given was going to resign, and that came true at four half four yesterday, effective from midnight, as you say. Mm. So, yeah, uh, very different 48 hours on. And that uh, move by Edwin Poots uh, seen as a very serious threat to international agreements. Uh, there's legal advice being taken on that uh, in Brussels, in Dublin, uh, and uh, indeed in Belfast, but uh, his order has not been implemented thus far. Uh, no, it hasn't. So the, 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 there are people at those ports in Belfast, Lauren, and I think in Warren Point as well, Michael, who were employed by the Department of Agriculture, also by the local councils, but they've all continued to do those checks. Lorry drivers were coming through from 6 o'clock yesterday morning, and they were being asked for the same paperwork. They're being told by their employers and by the business associations here in Northern Ireland to do the same. The earliest pull of a resolution to that is Monday, and at this stage, Everyone's carrying on as was, and if you filled in a bit of paper on Tuesday and Wednesday, then you fill in a bit of paper on Thursday and Friday to get your goods through on that. All right, everybody is saying uh, the DUP is throwing the dice, they're uh, gambling, if you like. Uh, Is this pure electioneering? It it, it does feel like it, and that is the accusation that's been levelled at them by by practically every, every other party here in Northern Ireland, especially by by Sinn Féin, who are aggrieved that Michelle O'Neill is now at a position as well, simply by the structure and the setup of the Northern Ireland Assembly. They have been backed, unsurprisingly and vociferously, by Jim Allister of the TUV. The Loyalist Community Council have come out in support of them as well, as have the Orange Order. The, I suppose the issue for it, Michael, going forward is that Northern Ireland cannot function in the way that it would like politically without a serving executive. So the, the other ministers will remain in, in post. They will be able to take some decisions, but they cannot bring new business to the table. Mm. They can only deal at this stage, as far as you understand, with existing business and push, if they can, on the time that's available before dissolution of the Assembly to put through some of the things that are sitting on the on the table. But anything new can't come. And there are things that are outstanding and major things that... We've no budget here for mm. the next three years. Michael, uh, Connor Murphy, the Sinn Féin finance minister, has tabled one, but it's out for consultation, so it's not as far as uh, as on the floor of the Assembly yet, and it looks like they won't be able to do that. Now, this morning, Connor Murphy's been saying that that's a bit of a red herring because, you know, the DUP weren't big fans of that budget anyway, and it's likely even if it came to the floor mm. of the Assembly, it would have been voted down by them. But it seems to be a, a state of utter confusion this morning because Geoffrey Donaldson uh, seems to be at, at odds with every other opinion on this because he's saying uh, that the Assembly can legislate uh, as would have been the case up to the point where it's dissolved for the election uh, right up to uh, April or, or May uh, if uh, that turns out to be the case. But everybody else seems to be saying uh, there could be problems. Uh, Robin Swan, the Health Minister, is uh, getting legal advice to see if he can lift yes. some of the COVID restrictions. He is, and the executive was meant to meet to, to review the COVID restrictions next Thursday, the 10th of February. Um, the, those regulations that we have, Michael, and they're not nowhere near as, as, as stringent as they were, but we haven't gone as far as yourselves. For example, there's still social distancing in place. There's still 
guidance and regulation on masks. And for example, we haven't yet phased in the return to work in the same way that you guys have uh, from home to the, the office. Robin Swan may well have the ability to do that um, without having to go the, to the executive and other parties, notably Naomi Long from Sinn Féin, the Justice Minister, had said that other parties like, like her own alliance and the SDLP are available to offer support and comfort to Robin Swan so that any decision he makes isn't made by himself if the legal advice would say that he does have the power to, to do that. There mm. are other things, Michael. We yeah. spent two days this week in the Assembly talking about climate change and, and, and there was a Green Party bill and the DUP bill. The Green Party bill won out. That should be able to go through because it was discussed and it is in transit and it's reached a certain stage in the Assembly. But there are other things. For example, in March, we're due to have an apology to victims of historical institutional abuse mm. in Northern Ireland. That was due to be delivered by Paul Kevin and Michelle O'Neill. There's now some doubt. Other parties are saying that that cannot happen. Yeah, the, the politics of that will... Maybe they can give, I'm sorry, the politics yeah. of that will seem like a, a, another slap in the face to victims of historical institutional abuse, won't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and this morning, the DUP have suggested that maybe they would devolve the ability to make that apology on behalf of the Assembly to one of the serving ministers. That's not something that's been countenanced at this point uh, by the other parties who are agreeing with the DUP. And their view is that, listen, the, the DUP can't on Thursday say we're coming out of it and we're bringing down the Office of First and Deputy First Minister and then the day after talk about ways to mitigate the problems that they have caused with their political decision. Yeah, and uh, I suppose uh, the question then is what happens uh, in uh, the intervening days or weeks before the Assembly is dissolved for the election. The leaders were to meet today, at least there was some hope that they would meet today, and they can't agree to meet to discuss exactly that. No, Michelle O'Neill, a Sinn Féin leader, had invited the other parties to. They do have a party leaders forum, it's called, and she'd invited them to a virtual meeting to try and discuss how they might get over this impasse in terms of passing legislation that's in the Assembly so they could do as much as possible before it's dissolved on whatever date for the election, whenever that is. But Sinn Féin had chosen to invite all of the parties apart from the DUP. They're saying that the DUP are part of the problem here. Other parties, notably the Alliance and Doug Beattie, the Ulster Unionist leader, are saying actually the DUP also need to be part of the solution. And while those other parties are very happy to sit down and to sit down today if they can and discuss what the way forward looks like for legislation, they do believe that that should be involving the DUP. And this morning on local radio, Conor Murphy, the finance minister from Sinn Féin, has said that while that may not be Sinn Féin's opinion, that they um, would be happy to have a meeting that involved the DUP. So we're waiting to hear whether or not that will be accepted by the DUP and whether that would be meeting number one, meeting number two, and on what day and what time it will take place to see if we can get any more clarity on what the next couple of weeks hold. And you mentioned the election there as mm. well, Michael. Uh, the DUP yesterday called for an early election to Sorry, Sinn Féin yesterday mm-hmm. called for the early election. They've been down this morning by the DUP. So Jeffrey Donaldson is calling for an early election as well. It is in the diary for the first Thursday in May. We may see it sooner, but equally, should the election be called forward, it also places under doubt the ability to get too much business through the Assembly before that. How serious is this? Uh, the protocol uh, is at the heart of it. Uh, it seems as though the only hope of a satisfactory solution to all is between uh, the talks uh, that are taking place uh, between Brussels and London. Boris Johnson told Jerry, Jeffrey Donaldson uh, that there's a 20 to 30% chance of an agreement, so that's a very slim chance. Uh, is there a, a possible solution in the Northern Ireland 
second uh, elections uh, and if uh, the DUP campaigns on not taking seats if the protocol remains in place what will happen then? Will the other unionist parties campaign uh, on uh, the same foot? Uh, and if the DUP uh, does take seats, uh, will the DUP vote for Sinn Féin First Minister if Sinn Féin returns the most seats? Yes, well, the, the first doubt, Michael, is over the date of the election. The second doubt is then over whether or not, even with an election and with representatives elected, regardless what party they come from, whether people like the DEP would go straight back in to that serving assembly. If you remember when we when Martin McGuinness and, the, and Sinn Féin decided in January 2017 to resign post and by virtue then bring down the assembly, that had a much greater impact then because of the legislation that was in place. The whole assembly had to fall. There have been moves to temper that in the meantime. But that left us, this is a five-year mandate for the assembly that finishes now at the end of March, start of April. We had three of the last five years when we had no assembly that was sitting because the DUP wouldn't go back in again until they were given certain assurances and there were lots of talks like the new deal, new agreement that was there. The same thing may happen again. It will most likely be the DUP who may believe that they have a bargaining chip and may argue that they're not going back into any stormant executive regardless of whether they would have a First Minister or Sinn Féin until they see a resolution to Brexit. And on your point of Boris Johnson, there had been positive mood music coming from the talks between Brussels and Westminster. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary in the UK, and Mara Saskovic got together yesterday. They're due to get together again next week. And Simon Coveney was making a very good point where he said, actually, no First Minister, no Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland doesn't make a button of difference to these talks, Michael, because they're between London and Westminster, mm. so the talks will carry on. And on your point of 20 to 30% from Boris Johnson, you know, I'm not sure if that ties in with the mood music we're being told about, the indications were that they might have been a bit closer to that. But then again, given recent events, we're not sure whether Boris Johnson and the truth are the best of friends. Well, yeah, OK, that's a, a very interesting point. Peter, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Peter McVerry is a journalist with our wireless sister station, U105, which is based in Belfast. And uh, just staying with uh, that order from uh, Mr. Poots uh, uh, in relation uh, to the checks on agri-gods uh, coming in uh, to Northern Ireland uh, from uh, Britain. Uh, well, there's a lot of questions about that. This is what Simon Coveney had to say about it in the Dáil last night. The, um, the message that I had certainly from the British government today is that they are, uh, they are taking legal advice uh, in terms of the options that are available. Um, and uh, it's also my understanding that the senior officials who are maintaining checks in ports in Northern Ireland today are also um, getting legal advice uh, in terms of their obligations uh, legally. Uh, Ireland's position on the implementation of the protocol has been consistent and why we will, we will continue to work with uh, Vice President Sefcovich and his team and also with Liz Truss and her team to try and find solutions to outstanding issues through compromise, through flexibility, through pragmatism in terms of how the protocol is implemented. We must be honest with people and consistent in terms of what the protocol represents. And the protocol is part of an international agreement, the withdrawal agreement, as I said earlier, agreed and ratified by the UK and the EU together. It's the result of over four years of difficult negotiation, which involved compromises on all sides. And it is the one and only solution found to protect the Good Friday Agreement in all its dimensions in the context of the UK's decision to leave the European Union. 
The UK has a clear international obligation to implement the terms of the protocol, including by ensuring that the agreed-upon SBS checks are carried out at ports in Northern Ireland. This is not only an international legal obligation. It's important to say this. The European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020, enacted by the UK Parliament, gives legal force in domestic UK law to the withdrawal agreement, of which the protocol is an, is an integral part. So this is British domestic legislation as well as international uh, law in the context of the treaties that have been agreed. So together with the European Commission, we will continue to closely monitor developments, of course, in Northern Ireland. It is ultimately the responsibility, however, of the British government to honour its commitments and to respect its international obligations. Um, but can I, can I say just finally, uh, this is an important month in the context of the protocol issues. Um, uh, and I know that there are significant efforts underway on the EU side and on the British government side to try to find accommodation on key issues like customs and SBS and so on before the end of the month. And so we need to ensure that despite all of the politics that's being played with this issue, that we give the negotiators time and space to try and find accommodation to settle some of these issues uh, in February if we can. If we can. Uh, it's a very serious situation and there's a lot at stake. Uh, that's uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, speaking in the Dáil last night. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Thanks uh, to Tom and Dundalk, who's uh, been on the phone to us uh, this morning. He says you'd have to wonder what the motives of the DUP are. They just seem intent on causing uncertainty in the North. It's either the DUP way or no way. They pushed for Brexit. That was against the wishes of the majority of the people in Northern Ireland. And now, because of the protocol, they seem to be throwing the rattle out of the pram and taking this action to try to garner support in the next election. They just seem to be stuck in the past. Do they care about the North at all, Tom asks. Thank you, as I say, Tom, for your call to the programme. Now, let's uh, go to the phones to speak to Gareth Fitzpatrick. Good morning to you, Gareth, and thanks uh, for joining us on the show uh, once again today. Uh, people will remember uh, you speaking to us uh, about your son, Connor, uh, who had surgery uh, last year. He's waiting on two more operations. You're hoping that they'll take uh, place this year, but uh, like many other people, you've been campaigning on people like your son, Connor, uh, and uh, you've joined an advocacy group uh, which uh, is talking about posh D in pain uh, and is campaigning on behalf of uh, children uh, who have spina bifida and hydrocephalus, uh, and indeed sometimes both of uh, those conditions for that matter. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, you're looking uh, for support for this campaign with a, a new website that was launched yesterday. Tell us a, a little bit more, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners, and thanks for having me on again. Um, yes, um, we are indeed, um, Michael. Um, just to take you slightly back to um, where we were before Christmas, um, obviously, uh, I spoke to you last time, Connor had his surgery and is doing well, thank God. Um, and um, we've, as a group, um, we sent motions to all 26 counties asking for the Minister to provide funding for Kappa Hospital to enable our children um, and the children who will be joining these lists in the future to access much-needed much surgery. And um, this has unanimously been agreed by most of the 26 counties already, with the last remaining to be adopted in February. So we thank you to all those councillors and councillors for adapting that. Um, that led us into, into the situation, Michael, of that the parents took 
a very hard decision that um, in order to try and move this campaign forward, we needed to highlight um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very, you know, um, uh, you know, uncomfortable way for the families, um, but a necessary way, we, we believed. So currently we have 69 children on that website, which is www.sbhpag.com. These children are currently waiting on surgery, follow-up surgery, and long-term access to multidisciplinary services, which is essential to make sure early detection of issues that occur in these children with the condition is treated accordingly. This is not happening in a lot of cases, which some children waiting over two years to access these services fully. So that's where exactly mm. uh, we came from, and anybody who has looked at the website so far will see how disturbing it is, um, probably for them, but can only imagine how disturbing it is for the parents. I can't imagine how disturbing it is for the parents. You must be a very determined group of people because you have an awful lot on your hands. Uh, it's a very professional-looking website, uh, but uh, it's being put together by a, a group of parents, as you say, who are all volunteering to do this. Uh, despite uh, how busy you are in uh, your everyday lives, you, you have all of uh, the challenges that we all face, plus you've got uh, high-dependent uh, children, and now you've uh, embarked on this campaign. Uh, it's a lot to take on. It's a lot to take on, and, and you know, I'd like to thank you know the, the co-leads of this, Una Kitely and Amanda Santries, who's done a massive amount of work, um, along with um, the other co- uh, committee members and all the parents, and putting this together. As you said, you know, people staying up to eleven and twelve o'clock at night, taking phone calls from parents who are distraught because you know they thought procedures were going to take place and didn't take place, or don't know when the procedures are going to take place. Like, and there's many of them issues, you know, are, lo- are, are locally and nationally. So that's you know, so it, it's a huge amount of work put into this and, and, and we're definitely thankful to the for the group um, for all the work that they do. Mm. Uh, you've a uh, number of uh, things uh, that you're hoping to see happen uh, and you're also listing uh, a number of uh, things on the website uh, that won't solve the problems that your children are living with like waiting for a new National Children's Hospital or apologies and sympathy from politicians for that matter. You want action and there's a lot of things that you want to happen uh, and I take it that, that 5.1 million euro that you're talking about uh, is uh, uh, the idea of putting your mouth where uh, your money where your mouth is type of thing absolutely michael and i like i mean i mean it's very very simple you know we, we are calling on the minister and the chi to listen to the experts the professionals like consultant conor green and professor mccormick and provide the funding needed for capital hospital you know in order to bring these waiting lists i mean that's you know it, the, the, the the groundwork has been done on this and um you know i mean so it's just it's just important that this takes place and if i just take you back on to wednesday if i can michael mm. Um, and, and Wednesday, John, John Leader's questions, Deputy Mary Lou MacDonald highlighted the need for funding for CAPA, as, long as, as well as the plight of Ava Cahill, who many would have seen on the RT News on Sunday night, openly upset about the fact that she was waiting on surgery and just wanted to, to be um, you know, a normal child. And that was very disturbing for not only our parents, I think for everybody that's seen it. And, you know, and then last night we had Abby Rose uh, Bourne, who was also on the programme, discussing her situation. This is something that should not have to happen, mm. Michael. Children shouldn't have to be on national television pleading mm. with politicians. Mm. But we listened, we listened to that all debate, by the way, uh, on the programme, and it was like a circus uh, between uh, Micheál Martin and uh, Mary Lou MacDonald going back and forth uh, at each other. Micheál Martin said the funding is there, and he, he said he wants the HSE to get on with it. Absolutely, 
and, and you know, and, and I, I agree with what you're saying, but, uh, you know, we'd like to thank Deputy Mary Lou McDonald for actually taking that, um, you know, to the, to the Taoiseach. But, yeah, it was to and fro, and as parents, it was, it was kind of very baffling for us to, um, to listen to the fact that the funding was there, and, yeah, we were told all along the line, lines that it was a funded issue. So, but from yesterday, on to yesterday, uh, Michael, and then after it seems to be the launch of the website, it was announced that an additional four million per year would be provided to the CHI with a view to improve services where additional with, with additional monies. Michael, it's welcome, but we're not clear where this money is actually going to go to. It wasn't outlined exactly since of of what um, you know what areas it was going to go to. Would our children and other children benefit from this? It was very kind of bland. But since that, um, on the six o'clock news, we have had you know correspondence after going back to the CHI through RTE, and they've told Independent IE it's currently working on a plan for the new funding and to improve orthopaedic services, uh, orthopaedic services including waiting mm. times for spina bifida and scoliosis services. We share the plan publicly once we have shared it with our colleagues in the HSE and importantly our advocacy group and families, which is welcomed because that's all we want, Michael, is engagement. But just to clarify as well on that, Michael, this is not a scoliosis uh, campaign. While a portion of our children have the condition, mm. it's just the tip of the iceberg, as outlined by consultant orthopaedic surgeon Conor Green in yeah. the Oireachtas Committee before Christmas. So we don't want to have a situation where all funding is put into one fund and every different uh, um, you know, problem that's yeah. occurred is coming from that fund. All, all, all the focus is on scoliosis, in other words. Uh, but what are they going to do with the money if they don't spend it on scoliosis? Uh, because uh, there's a lack of knowledge, is there not? Uh, at least that's what I, I took uh, from reading uh, your website, uh, because you want a register of spina bifida hydrocephalus children. Absolutely, yeah. We want to, we want because nobody seems to know. I mean, the, 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 the figures of 56 was mentioned during the week there of children on a waiting list. And as you can recall, mm. before Christmas, the list of the, the, the figures I was giving you was around the 81, mm. 82 mark. And whether it's 56 or 81, uh, yeah. does anybody know what's wrong with them? Because that's a, another thing that you're looking for, is that their medical charts uh, would be looked at uh, and it could be established what treatment they need. Absolutely. See, that's the most important part of it, to assess the situation, to assess the child, to assess what the needs of the child are. So once you establish the needs of the child, you know, you can very quickly move on to, to, mm. to, to what has to be done what has to be done from that and just as well as that Michael people have, have you know approached um, individual families and stuff and said look is it a case of that you know a GoFundMe pages and that you know these procedures can be done overseas it's, it's not an option for these children as the mm. aftercare is intense it's weekly it's daily in some cases so if somebody was to get a procedure done in a, in a, in a different country the aftercare, it wouldn't be it'd be impractical to, to have the aftercare. It couldn't mm. be done. Well, Michael Martin says the funding is there. Connor Green says it can be done. Uh, a consultant that you obviously have uh, an awful lot of admiration for uh, and uh, an awful lot of uh, the lack of knowledge uh, seems downright daft, uh, it would seem, uh, Gareth. Uh, but uh, we have to leave it there for the moment. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again uh, because... Uh, uh, undoubtedly you'll keep campaigning for justice for fundamental justice uh, for your child as indeed the other members of the group will Gareth Fitzpatrick uh, a member of uh, the Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus Paediatric Advocacy Group and father of Connor uh, who suffers with Spina Bifida Michael Reed on LMFM Government acknowledges that the cost of living is rising uh, it's rising very very fast at the moment uh, faster than it has in 20 or 30 years uh, and people are feeling the squeeze um, whether it's the shock of looking at your gas bill 
whether it's the electricity bill, whether it's the rising cost of uh, filling a tank uh, of diesel or petrol, everyone uh, is feeling it in their pocket. And of course, uh, those on the lowest incomes feeling it more so uh, than those who are not. Um, and the government gets that. We've already taken action, um, much of which was opposed uh, by your party, uh, some, of, some of which was not. Um, and we acknowledge, though, that the action that we've taken to help families with the cost of living is not enough. Uh, and for that reason, um, three party leaders who we met on Monday night uh, commissioned line ministers to develop proposals um, for a package uh, of measures that will allow us to help families um, with the cost of living. That's being worked on at the moment. We'll have further discussions on it uh, today, um, meeting with the unions and employers this afternoon, a chance to discuss it then. Uh, there'll be uh, a committee meeting of the Economic um, uh, Cabinet Committee, which I chair next week, which will be another chance to discuss it as well. And we will make a decision on it, and we'll make it soon, uh, certainly in the next couple of weeks. Um, because we do acknowledge that the cost of living is rising. Uh, we acknowledge uh, that it's uh, causing a huge squeeze for a lot of families. Um, and we acknowledge that as a government, we have to do something about it. And we're aware that other governments in other parts of the world have taken action too. Uh, and we believe uh, we must do so as well. Leo Bradker speaking in uh, the Dáil. Yes, as uh, the Tánaiste says, uh, the government is in the process of uh, deciding to help, how to help people uh, with uh, the cost of living. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. You might have a, a few ideas about this, Sean. How about uh, cutting income tax for the highest earners? Uh, because if they have more money in their pockets, uh, they might spend more and it might trickle down to the lowest earners might suggest but anyway <laughs> I, I wouldn't forgive be proposing me. that myself I don't think that's no. quite the priority but anyway forgive my yeah. cynicism but uh, you've been suggesting for years on end uh, many ways of uh, putting money directly into the pockets of the lowest earners uh, this is an opportunity for you to reiterate some of those ideas that's right I think there's two the thing that we need to recognise is that there are two key groups who are at risk of poverty they're the poorest the most vulnerable the first are people who are on core social welfare is that depending on social welfare uh, they, they're fixed, they have fixed incomes and their incomes do not adjust with inflation uh, automatically or anything of that nature they don't get annual uh, pay increases or anything of that nature and the second thing is uh, the, the second group is people on low paid jobs who have a job but are living in poverty so there's a strategy to deal with both. The first one, the social welfare uh, grouping, that, that group um, of people uh, in, in the budget of, for 2022, which was announced last uh, October, the government made a decision to only increase the welfare uh, that rate that they were of core welfare rates by five euro a week. Now, you and I discussed on this very program that that wasn't likely to be sufficient to keep pace with the rising cost of living, despite what the Tarnishton might have been saying yesterday or the day before, whenever mm-hmm. he was making those comments. And uh, the reality was, it was quite clear at that time that we were heading towards a 5% inflation rate and that if that's the case 5% of 208 is, is over 10 euro a week and remember those people had not actually received any increase in the two previous years mm-hmm. of the budgets of the two previous years so it should have gone up by 10 euro it only went up by 5 what we're saying is right now increase it by the other 5 yeah. that would it won't change the world but it will put a 5 a week into everybody's pocket among the most vulnerable in the country. The second group, people on welfare, on, uh, who have a job, but it's so low paid that they're still living in poverty. There's 133,000 of those in the country at the moment. Um, now, what we're saying about those is that the two main 
tax credits should be fully available to them in the sense that they should be able to benefit fully from the value of them. Because of the way our tax system is, they... uh, because they're earning so little money, they're not paying enough tax to benefit from the full value. Mm. So what we're saying is the balance that they're not benefiting from should be paid to them right now, immediately. It is possible to do that. It's very targeted, uh, and it doesn't. The money doesn't doesn't seep away anywhere else. Nice. And what would that be worth to people? Uh, no, it, it would depend on the people uh, mm. the, the, where they are. But it could be. It could be. Uh, I think the average is about seventeen, eighteen euro a week. Right. Okay. You know? But yeah. it, it it would depend on how fa- how much of the tax mm. credit they're actually benefiting from, and, and how much they're not. Benefiting and, and, from. and when you look at how prices are increasing, especially yeah. when you look at the cost of energy, the cost of heating your home right. and the cost of groceries. Uh, you're not suggesting that people would be laughing all the way to the bank or running down to the pub. Uh, you're more or less saying that this would allow them to stand still, that they wouldn't be down on the deal. Well, ab- absolutely. At least it would it would get them to the starting line, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like that, that, yeah. that, that, because they've been, You see, there's been a total tendency of leaving them fall behind. And there's a very interesting study, and it's interesting for two reasons. One is the results, but the other reason is who did it. It was done by the Parliamentary Budget Office, which works to the Oireachtas Committees, okay, in, in, in Leinster House, and particularly to the Budget Committee. And it just did a, a study there just a month ago. It published it, which showed the changing value in the core welfare rates. Uh, so they compared uh, all the way from 2011 to 2022. And what they found was, the, like, 208 euro, if, uh, like, the, the, the actual, that's the value of the welfare rate now. But, but that's only, comp- if when you take the changes into place, they are, take the changes mm-hmm. into, in, into account in the last 11 years, it's only worth 193 euro a week in real terms uh, if you placed it back in 2011. So mm. there's been a huge decline, like that's uh, mm. a, a huge decline in the actual payment. Whatever so the we, government does though, it's a delicate balancing act, isn't it? Because uh, yeah. you can have cycles of inflation and if you take the wrong steps, you can fuel inflation up to a point where it can that's spin right. out of control. And like that, I mean, if you increase the rate of social welfare, do you then have to increase the minimum wage. If you increase the minimum wage to people earning more than that, I also have to get an increase. If everybody's wages go up, does it get more expensive to buy things in the shop? Uh, and that's before you get to the ECB and mortgage interest rates. Right, okay. Uh, just the minimum wage first to get that right. Um, the minimum wage is too low. It should be at the living wage level. And that's more than two euro a week. Uh, sorry, two euro mm-hmm. an hour more. And like the whole point about the living wage is that it's based on what is required for the minimally adequate standard of living. Now, the minimum wage is, be- is way below that. The current government, in its program for government, commits to adopting a living wage during its term of office. So it, there's nothing hugely radical about saying they should uh, take a very serious look at that right now. However, the, the basic question you were asking me was, is this inflationary? The answer is absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. Um, the people that we're talking about are actually going to spend that money deciding to, to buy food as well as pay for heat. Because like they've had to make a decision uh, in recent times, given the fuel cost rises. Mm. Uh, they've had to make, make a choice between do they eat 
or provide heat. Like that's a dreadful choice that should never be a, a, a choice that people have to make in, in, in a country, particularly in a country as rich as this one. Mm. Like we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world, whether we like it or not. That's that's where we are. But we organise ourselves in such a way that we have people who have to make a choice between whether they have enough food on the table for their family or whether they have to heat the table. But they, why they is that? Is, 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 is that because of Russian policy? Is is it uh, because of uh, the cost uh, of crude oil, or what is it? No, it's not because the you know, Russians are playing. They, you know, they're, they're they're playing their own games. But that's not because why people are in this space. Mm. People are in this space because they have not been given the priority over the years. Uh, the, the bottom line in it is, you, uh, we need a country that has decent standard of living for everybody. That has good infrastructure like public transport and social housing and that has good services like health and education okay and they are the kinds of things that people expect in a in a in a country like Ireland and Irish people mostly would want to benchmark themselves against the other countries in western europe but what what do we find we find that 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 people are wanting to do that, and government saying we'll do it, but they're they're only they're, they're trying to do it off American levels of taxation. You mm. can't do this the kind of thing that the government's trying it's to do. It's the the Boston Berlin argument. All right, Sean, we're out of time. We have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us as always, Sean Haley, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, it was known to everybody as Galway Gate. The three-day trial ended in this district court in Galway yesterday. The judge, Mary Fahey, said she was satisfied that the organisers did everything to comply, not in a court of public opinion, but in the court of law, in my opinion. Let's uh, talk uh, to Fiona Sheehan, who is uh, the Ireland editor with uh, the Irish Independent. And, uh, a very good morning to you, Fiona. Thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, the charges against Noel Grealish TD, former Senator Donny Cassidy and the hoteliers John and James Sweeney have been dismissed. I'm sure nobody will argue with uh, the judge's decision on all of uh, this, but what are the ramifications? Well, I suppose uh, the difficulty is that you, you can't turn the, the, the clock back now and the people who attended the events can't turn around and say, well, look, it, it, the judge has found it was in compliance uh, with the law and, and therefore I should be given my, my job back uh, that I lost at the time. Um, as as you point out, the judge said the, the court of public opinion is a different thing to a, a court of law. Uh, and it was amidst the, the controversy around this event uh, and uh, the state of, of restrictions and regulations in the country uh, at the time, that resulted in in individuals having to, to stand down for positions. So, if you look at it, uh, Dara Kaleri resigned as, as Minister for Agriculture uh, effectively within 36 hours of that event. Once the once the event itself uh, became public and spoke about an error of judgment on his part and and so on, um, he's on the Fianna Fáil backbenches ever since. There, you know, he's uh, to be fair to him. Let's separate out this court case at all. He acted in a very respectful manner at, at, at the time. He said there was controversy about this event, therefore he, he had to stand down. Uh, he hasn't been uh, quite from the back benches uh, since. Uh, there was a lot of sympathy for, for his cause and, and the manner in which he had to resign anyway at the time. 
and there, there would be a wide expectation uh, that he would be reappointed to the ministerial office. But, you know, in the meantime, other people uh, have had roles as cabinet ministers and junior ministers. They've had their chance to, to, to make uh, an impression. So, you know, you have to push, you have to try now and push out somebody who's who's been doing a job uh, for, for the past 18 months. Mm. Uh, the other most high-profile casualty was ultimately Phil Hogan, the European Commissioner, who, although, you know, did this event... Uh, in mid-July, uh, it dragged on with, with him for uh, about another three or four weeks in terms of, of other uh, restrictions and regulations uh, and his his engagement and interpretation uh, with them. There was uh, reports of of him being uh, caught by the Gardaí on, on a mobile phone um, while, while he was driving and... Uh, his place of, of residence was in uh, County Kildare at a time when County Kildare was was under other restrictions. Uh, there ended up that ended all ended up effectively in a situation where uh, the government uh, was writing to the head of the European Commission, effectively expressing no confidence in him, uh, and he ultimately ended up uh, resigning again. In this case, mm. you you would now look at it and go, well, he attended an event that it was found to be in compliance with the law. Yeah. Uh, he he wasn't uh, brought to court and found to be uh, in breach of any other laws. So so therefore, why was he forced to resign? However, Red McGuinness uh, has has replaced him as European Commissioner, and there's, there's no going back there. I mean, that that's politics. You you don't get to turn around uh, and say um, that was an unfair dismissal or or anything uh, like that. Mm. The, the individuals concerned, they, they, they resigned uh, themselves. It's not like uh, an, an normal workplace uh, in that regard. We've seen in the past, uh, only as recently as, as the last decade, where uh, Alan Shatter, for example, uh, had to resign as Minister for, for, for Justice uh, amid controversies at the time. But, I mean, he was entirely vindicated uh, of any accusations being being placed against him, uh, it, it took him time to, to have to, to clear his name, but he did so. But in the meantime, he lost his cabinet seat, and then he he lost his doll seat uh, in the subsequent uh, general election. Again, mm. you know, he, he, he vindicated him himself, but uh, on a personal and professional level, but from a, a political level, he wasn't able to, to either get his cabinet roll back or obviously his doll seat. Yeah, scandal, which was not upheld uh, brought a sudden end to his political career which would be the same with Phil Hogan and you could understand why they would feel uh, aggrieved uh, given that they were subsequently vindicated. What about Derek Caleri though because his uh, political career continues and I'm sure that this vindication will leave him hopeful for the future. Yeah and and, and there was there was very definitely uh, a lot of support and sympathy for him uh, with within his party and and some people felt um that his resignation uh wasn't merited uh, at the time and and posited that Michal Martin was a bit too fast uh to to accept it uh so soon into a, a controversy before you know uh, facts and 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 investigations uh uh, had had been uh, established, but I, I suppose you know that is the difference that uh, of of what the the judge was highlighting. Public opinion was was one thing, and, and this is another. Ultimately, you you look back on on this event uh, and say, well, 
you know, there was a lot of funerals that happened during COVID-19 of, of people who passed away. There was limited numbers of, of as little as 10 uh, at one point at those funerals. And, you know, uh, people didn't put up a partition inside the church and, and put in 20 people and say, well, you know, they're, they're in a separate, they're in a separate area. Uh, likewise, with with weddings, people had to had to limit uh, the numbers who, who attended there. There was no you know, partitions or suggestions that they were effectively uh, two two events uh, in in the one place. So, you know, those kind of things will will still rankle. And that that's ultimately what what it comes down to. You know, people, uh, the, the judge has acknowledged she is making her her deliberation about the facts of law being put put for her. What the the, the public. May may have uh, ultimately different views uh, on this event because ultimately you had an event being held uh, here. Uh, yes, in in compliance with the law and uh, the 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 limitations uh, on on the numbers of of people at the time uh, required that this be held in a room that had a partition down the middle and. In, in light of the fact that it was being held in the name of the of the national parliament, people will wonder: Well, was it entirely necessary for this event to happen at all? Could it have been postponed uh, and and not held just in solidarity uh, with people across the country and businesses and individuals uh, who were undergoing uh, an awful lot of suffering at that time? A, a bit like saying uh, that it, it uh, was to the letter of the law, but may not have been. Uh, in the spirit of the public health restrictions at the time, yeah, you, you, you could argue that. Um, you know, it, it, especially given that you know, as, as the people, as one of the defendants has said, he was a, a lawmaker, not a lawbreaker. And uh, yeah, if you're if you're a lawmaker, I suppose uh, greater things are expected of you. Um, in terms of uh, adopting a, a leadership role and, and, and setting uh, an example uh, uh, for others, uh, and, and showing that that you understand uh, the, the the difficulties that that people are going through at, okay. at the particular time, and, and ultimately, mm-hmm. when you look at it from the, the political perspective, that's what prompted the, the resignations. Otherwise, you know, politics doesn't work the same as the law. There was there was nobody arguing within government at that time oh well we're going to have to wait until the outcome of the guard investigation and any mm. subsequent prosecution in any court case and then after that we'll decide what should happen with Phil Hogan or we'll decide what, what should happen with, with Derek O'Leary. It, it was the politics and the public perception yeah. that, that prompted those resignations. That's it though I, I take it the ruling draws a, a line under this now. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it doesn't so far as this, this is as far as the as the, the investigation goes. I, I don't really see that the Kion Corla uh, of the doll, uh, Shauna Farrell, who who effectively uh, shut down the, the Iraq Scout Society, is going to be in any rush uh, to restart uh, it. Uh, I don't, you know, the, the, uh, it, it may help some people uh, coming back in, in in terms of aspects uh, of their their careers, but you know the, the the controversy happened and it's still in in people's mindset and people will have have a view of of the events that that occurred at particular at that particular time. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Okay, Fiona, nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Fiona Sheen, who is the Ireland editor of the Irish Independent. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, you may remember a year ago or so uh, that three and a half thousand people signed a petition hoping uh, that uh, there would be justice uh, for victims of uh, the Troubles and uh, their families. Uh, the petition uh, was led by Relatives for Justice. It might seem uh, ironic today that a delegation from Relatives for Justice are meeting with the Irish government in the hope that uh, the Stormont House Agreement will be implemented in full. It also comes uh, in the face of uh, the British government's unilateral proposal uh, to give an amnesty to anybody guilty of uh, criminality during the Troubles. The legacy of the Troubles continues to impact on so many families and communities across this island and beyond uh, as they continue, rightfully, to seek truth uh, and justice for their loved ones. The issue, of course, has been at the forefront of all our minds in recent days as the events marking the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday uh, took place in Derry. It was an emotional moment across the island and beyond as so many reflected on the terrible day and the bitter, bitter legacy left and the history that it shaped. We were all struck by Derry's collective determination to remember the 14 that died, in particular the families uh, and those injured on the day, as well as all of the victims uh, of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I know that our thoughts in particular with the Bloody Sunday families and the people of Derry around this particular time. But as the Taoiseach and Minister Coveney have said, and as everyone knows only too well, there are many hundreds of families across these islands whose daily lives continue to be impacted by that painful legacy. For anyone who lost a loved one and who has to continue to campaign on their behalf to uncover the truth of what happened, for any measure of justice, the decades that have passed have not lessened the heartbreak. The wounds have not been allowed to heal. So it is incumbent upon us, on their behalf, and as we work for real, lasting reconciliation on this island, to establish a clear and open legacy process that meets the needs of victims. The Stormont House Agreement gave us such a process. It set out a path, a framework to guide us, and one that was agreed by both governments, British and Irish governments, and the parties in Northern Ireland. It is incumbent on us all to see that framework implemented and indeed it is a uh, obligation of us all uh, to see that framework implemented. It is absolutely clear that the UK proposals on a statute of limitations do not have the support of victims. They do not have the support of parties in Northern Ireland and they have united this house as well. They have caused grave concern to international human rights bodies. They're without international precedent. They would have introduced be subject to years of well-founded legal challenge and cause of even greater hardship and pain for yet another generation. They cannot be the way forward. And so the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, speaking in the Dáil on Tuesday. Let's uh, talk to Andre Murphy, who's a Deputy Director with Relatives for Justice. Good morning to you, Andre, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, a delegation from your organisation will meet with the Taoiseach and indeed Mary Lou MacDonald t- today. But I, I take it uh, we got a, an insight into government thinking from what we just heard there from the Minister. Yeah, you know, thanks for having me on, Michael. And you're absolutely right. I was really struck listening to to that piece, just how different um, those words were to what families have been hearing from the British Secretary of State and in Westminster, particularly this year, face against the rights of victims and survivors 
against the, um, their rights to truth and justice, just to know the basic facts about how their loved ones met their death, to have proper acknowledgement and the basic fundamentals of justice uh, um, put in place. You know, it is just so different. And that's why it's so important for victims and survivors to be able to go to meet the Taoiseach, to be able to meet the leader of the opposition today as well, because what they're, what they're seeking is defence of their rights. Mm, on the face of it, the Irish... On the face of the Irish government is fully supportive of your position, but what do you want them to do? Well, I suppose it's about what's going to be effective now. It's about a tactical approach because victims and survivors in 2014, as you rightly said, were promised effective um, human rights compliant investigations with the Stormont House Agreement, plus, um, you know, examining patterns of collusion and other patterns of the conflict. Um, all the parties, both governments signed up to that. And then to have it just unilaterally taken away by the British government was was a shock. So what's tactically going to be um, effective now with this particular British government? Um, as we've seen with Brexit, the only approach that's really going to work is an intercession with the US administration and some talk around around trade. Because, you know, the, uh, we only saw that um, the, the really worst, hardest of Brexits and its impact in Ireland was taken back when the US intervened. We need exactly the same on behalf of victims and survivors who, in all honesty, have been left behind by the peace process. We haven't to date had proper processes put in place for the people worst affected by the conflict. And that um, affects everyone in society. If we can't establish what happened in the past, we cannot be assured that it will not happen again. You know, everyone benefits from the rights of victims and survivors being being honoured. And, you know, the Irish government have been very strong and resolute in the face of what the British government have been doing. But it's now about tactics and what um, our delegation, which is only small because still COVID kind of uh, is in place and the re- restrictions and that. Um, what they'll be saying to and asking from the Taoiseach is that he uses the opportunity to intercede with the um, um, US administration and ask for the US administration to be robust for the Good Friday Agreement and also the Stormont House Agreement because they are interlinked. Right, uh, and uh, trying to make sense of uh, things or to uh, seek uh, a fair approach from the British government uh, is a waste of time, is it? I mean, if I understand things correctly, I think there's strong opinion that if uh, the British act unilaterally uh, and introduce this de facto amnesty, the statute of limitations, that it would be in breach of international law, but that doesn't seem to matter to them. Well, it seems to be this this particular British government flies in the face of all international norms in terms of law, in terms of how governments normally conduct themselves when they have made agreement. The rules simply do not apply. We see that on so many levels, but particularly in terms of victims and survivors. So, you know, and what's going to matter with them then? It isn't law, it isn't public opinion, it's not their standing in the international community, but money might matter. You know, trade will matter because that seems to be the only thing to which they listen at the minute. So, and, you know, we are very worried with the collapse of the institutions yesterday. Mm. That That's one less barrier for the, the uh, Secretary of State and the British government, you know, where you had the executive resolutely opposing this legislation to have them out of the way. Now, you know, that that might create even worse ground for for victims and survivors. So, you know, we really need the Irish government to to be very tactically engaged now in terms of what they can do. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that uh, what we saw yesterday was the beginning of the end of power sharing? Well, you know, 
you know, the Good Friday Agreement is on this island, you know, and overwhelmingly supported. And even though the DUP opposed it at the time, they are now, ironically, in the midst of all this, talking about the the principles of the Good Friday so the executive and power sharing is a central pillar to that. I think that, you know, minds have to be focused on what makes this work. Brexit undermines the Good Friday Agreement, um, you know, and that is at the heart of the problems that we face now. What we need to do is really concentrate minds on preserving the Good Friday Agreement and preserving peace and not ratcheting up any tensions or talks of, um, you know, our communities or for unionism. We need to get back to the basic principles of ensuring that our entire community is protected by the human rights frameworks and by power sharing institutions themselves and that we we kind of try and get back on track. You know, unionism's what I would say kind of you know, they're, they're worried about losing their position within the north of Ireland. You know, they need to get to grips with that and they need to get back preserving the peace. And the DUP is a very difficult party to understand at the moment, especially when you consider <laughs> that uh, maybe they always were, but uh, they certainly are at the moment, especially when you consider uh, that they had a supply and confidence uh, agreement with uh, the Conservative Party. Now they're completely at odds with uh, the deal that the Conservative Party did uh, on Brexit and they're completely at odds uh, as well with uh, the Tories on this amnesty. Uh, it, it's objected to across the board on this island. Oh, it really is, and internationally as well. Mm. You know, there is there's absolutely no place where people have got, where anyone except the Tory Party itself, and even not all the Tory Party, are standing up and saying, you know, this is a great idea. Far, far from it. Everyone can see the hurt and pain that it's causing to victims and survivors. Everyone can see that it's a it breaches international law and the fundamentals of domestic law and due process you know there is nowhere and no one that could stand up and say this is a good idea and creates a good precedent Mm. all it does is create bad precedent but the worst thing for victims and survivors whether it's 50 40 30 years ago and one of the delegation is mark sykes who uh, was injured in the orma road bookmakers and the that 30th anniversary is tomorrow you know for all of those families wherever they are and names that most people will never have heard of. For all of them, all this legislation does is compound their harm and say they were never worthy of due process, never worthy of proper truth and justice. Our peace process cannot say that to them, and they must be equal citizens on this island. Okay. Uh, your delegation will be making those points uh, to the Taoiseach and uh, to the leader of Sinn Féin today. And thank you for joining us on the programme uh, to talk about it with us. Andre Murphy is uh, the Deputy Director of uh, the group Relatives for Justice. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's 154 years since Constance Markovich was born on the 4th of February 1868. And Constance Markovich is undoubtedly an icon in Irish politics and certainly iconic in terms of the women who have carved out a career for themselves in Irish politics. Unfortunately, it's probably true to say that too few women have managed to take up a career in politics since Constance Georgine Markovich died 
1927. Uh, the Women for Election group wants to change that and they're hoping uh, that uh, they'll be able to identify, support and encourage at least a thousand women to contest the next local elections in 2024. Megan Riley, Training and Engagement Lead with Women for Election, joins us now. Good morning to you, Megan, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. How do you, morning, how do you hope to go about that? Yeah, so I, I suppose we, we have launched this campaign with an ambitious target for a thousand women and we're already doing a lot of work on it um, and we have support from all of the major political parties today who are putting out videos for us and supporting the campaign. But it really, you, you know, there's, there's various different elements to this. I mean, we run training courses and information sessions uh, for women who are interested in running in politics, but we also, we need to to see action from the parties on this. Um, and like I said, they are supportive and they're committed to it, but it's about making sure that from the very first moment a woman expresses interest in politics that and is perhaps entering into a political party, that there's support there right through the process, that it's clear and it's accessible. Um, because women have historically been left out of the sort of political sphere, and that's something that we're only starting to rectify now. And that's why the numbers are so abysmal. So I think it's a combination of that sort of large public support as well as everyone joining in and encouraging women to put themselves forward um, and perhaps consider mm. politics as a career where they might never have considered it before. Would you be hoping that there'd be a, a woman candidate for each seat in the country because there's nearly a thousand seats in the country, isn't there? Yeah, for the local elections, definitely. And like we only, if you look at it, there was only 560 women who even ran last time. So that's why we're saying a thousand. And, you know, there is a rural-urban divide when it comes to this as well. If you look yeah. at, you know, the figures in, in, in Dublin or even, they're not as bad in, in, in Louth and Meath. But if you're, if you're going further down the country, sometimes mm. there's, you know, there's entire uh, county councils that only have one woman on them. And it must be a very lonely place to yeah. be. No, they're very good in Louth and Meath, compar- comparatively speaking. Uh, but I, I take it that that's the way it works. You'll have uh, some constituencies uh, where you may have two or three or four or more women running uh, and some have none. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that's something that we're really trying to address. Um, you know, and it, it's about a combination of this, that sort of community outreach as well. And what we're telling people today is like, we all know fantastic women who are leaders or trailblazers or someone you know, who you just think is, is really supportive to their community. And we're saying that today is the day to tell that person, you know, I, I would love to see you represent me on the county council because the, the barriers that have been in place means that a lot of women won't necessarily consider running for election. And, you know, our research has shown that sometimes, and I've heard it from politicians myself as well, that they need to be asked, women sometimes need to be asked as much as three times to run by different people as well. And that doesn't mean that they're any less capable or any, you know, less willing to put themselves forward. It's more of a case of being sort of left out of that sphere for so long uh, and the way that, you know, women have been perceived in Irish society and there's been great strides and, you know, we are definitely making progress in that area. Um, but And, and gender quotas are, are helping as well. Um, but it's definitely something that we, we have a lot further to go. So that's that's what we're trying to address with this mm. campaign. Yeah, even though... Uh Miss Markovic uh, was a cabinet minister in 1919. Mm. Yeah, and we, we really, like, we led the way. She was Europe's first 
cabinet minister. You know, it was um, it was a case where there were a lot of countries in, in Europe where women still didn't have the right to vote. But unfortunately, if you look at, um, you know, and for the, the people who are interested in, in history, once uh, Ireland gained independence, if you look at the, the series of laws and, mm. you know, the way that the, the constitution was used to essentially keep women out of public life, you know, there was, there was an act passed in 1927, the Juries Act, that essentially said that women would, would have to opt in if they wanted to be on a jury. So there you're seeing a legal system and by and large as well, a political system where it was passed down and the knowledge and, you know, the, the wherewithal to run was passed down to men. And mm. it was an extremely hard uh, place for women to kind of crack into that. Um, so that's why we're honouring her, because she was she was a, a phenomenal feminist and she was a real pioneer and a champion of women's rights. Um, and she really stood for what, what we think this campaign is about. Mm. You know, which is it's a new, it's it's a, it's a relatively new campaign. Uh, I know a hundred years ago seems a long time ago, but uh, in uh, the big scheme of things, it's a relatively new campaign because uh, if you think back, it was 1918 before women got the vote in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, that's mm. women over the age of 30, uh, and men could vote at 21. Uh, but uh, in 1922. Uh, the free state gave equal voting rights to men and women. Uh, and of course, Constance Markovitch uh, was a, a big part of all of that. She was, yeah. But even still, there was a, there, you know, there was a battle for that. And, you know, the, the suffragette movement in Ireland was very vocal at the time that Ireland was was seeking independence. And the two causes were kind of, you know, were, were married together by mm. the women at the time, which was which was great, but the, initially, even in Ireland, the voting rights was only given to women over thirty as well, and then it was it was a struggle to get it to get equal voting rights. And no, you're right. I mean, I don't I don't think a hundred years is, is that long of a time at all. And I, I would say you could speak to TDs and female TDs and ministers who are in the Dáil now, who have been there a long time, who would remember in the corridors when they were one of very few women. And you know, they that's just that's not reflective of Irish society. Mm. Um, at all like that's not so uh, that's what we're saying is that you know governments and if we have an Oireachtas and local councils that are more representative and uh, of the people that they're representing um, that naturally that leads towards a healthier democracy when, when mm. we're seeing that sort of like diversity across the board The Oireachtas website is a, a fabulous resource for anybody who has a, an interest uh, in politics Megan and I was actually reading uh, the debate from the 2nd of March 1922 when mm. The motion was brought to the Dáil to give women the vote. Uh, it was Kathleen O'Callaghan who brought the motion uh, to the Dáil at the time. Uh, and uh, it's just interesting reading through it. Everybody is Mr and Mrs. All of the women are described as Mrs. So it was Mrs O'Callaghan uh, who uh, moved the motion. Uh, but when people referred to her, uh, they didn't refer to her as Mrs O'Callaghan or Deputy O'Callaghan. Uh, they referred to her as Deputy Mrs O'Callaghan, which was <laughs> incredible. Uh, polite, uh, but it really was a, a different world a hundred years ago. Uh, and uh, there was a, a great speech, uh, I might go over some of it in a, a minute, uh, that was given by Constance Markovitch uh, in relation to that. Uh, but one of the points she was making was uh, that men are always great at talking the talk when it comes uh, to uh, giving equal rights to women. And they were very happy to give equal rights to women who uh, took part in the rising and uh, fought on uh, the part of the IRA. But it was sort of left by the wayside uh, then when it was time for action. Yeah, I think so. And, it, it, you know, it's really unfortunate that there was a rollback in those 
rights and that like when you look at it, it wasn't just at the time like women actually had far more rights you know like pre-independence than, than they ended up with post with the series of laws that were introduced into the constitution but that's so that's why we're trying to put this in the context of that's what Irish society was like 100 years ago and it is definitely worth bearing it in mind because it's still having an impact on how our political system functions today and you're, we had um, six female TDs in, in the first doll, um, the initial first doll, and we only have 31 more today, you know, mm. and if you look at the, the amount of, of men who have gained seats since versus the amount of women, like, it's just staggering, so you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but that's why we, we're we putting on these, these programmes that help uh, tackle the barriers that, that women are facing. Right, and uh, t- tell us a little bit about those barriers and how they can be overcome. Yeah, so I mean, the research would show that a lot of the, the barriers are around uh, cash is one, you know, we kind of say like the five C's and, and cash is one of them, childcare as well, um, and confidence. And, you know, if you're diving into the individual ones, politics needs to be a more family friendly place. Um, and there's work being done on that as well. The Cancorla has, has come out with a, a family friendly politics report about how to make sure that, you know, there's not uh, bills being debated at all hours of the night. And for example, there's not. Um, council meetings that are that are going on later called last minute because that's something that would really discourage women from, from going into political life if they think that it, it's possible that their life is going to be consumed um, by it and I think abuse the abuse that uh, women uh, well politicians but particularly female politicians um, is like is many more times what their, their male counterparts would receive um, so you know that's that's something I think that we need to be having a national conversation on as well, and the um, not necessarily a barrier, but like I mentioned, the party candidate selection can sometimes be a thing where you know politics is a, can be a very big and tricky field to navigate, and it shouldn't be the case that it's only those who are within the inner circles or are, are in the right room get the access and the and the knowledge to how they run. Um, so that's why we're saying that candidates and female candidates need support from the very get-go. There's no point in putting somebody on a ticket in a seat that you know is not winnable Token. or not giving a candidate mm. the support yeah. in order to... And it's the problem with quotas, isn't it, so that that's what ends up happening uh, and people are effectively used as token candidates uh, to fulfil the criteria that you are running uh, as many as is necessary uh, to fulfil the quota, but you're not really serious about it. Yeah, well, I mean, we think like gender quotas are a positive thing in that they're, you know, they're sort of, they've they've forced forward the cause and it would have taken us a much longer time to move what is a very stubborn dial uh, further towards a 50-50 representation without them. But that, yeah, that's why you need the, the whole party approach. And, you know, you see now a lot of the parties have women's networks and that's great to see that kind of support being provided. But we do, yeah, we need to see it filter all the way down. No more of these paper candidacies or tokenistic candidates because that's something that can knock someone's confidence as well. It's a massive thing for a woman to put herself forward for election or for anyone to put themselves forward mm. for election so you know it's vital that there is there is a legitimate reason there and that they're given the tools to be able to build up a profile in the area um, and that it's not just to take a box and look like I said the parties are out today on social media we have videos from the Taoiseach and all of the other leaders um, supporting this campaign supporting more women and saying we're going today we're going to we're promising for we're going to be having more women on the ballot in the 2024 local elections um, but 
we need to we need to see that all the way down through the party. And for anyone who is thinking of running for election, mm. you know, the, the, now is a good time to start thinking of it. You know, the elections are a couple of years out, so it's a, it's a good time to be maybe thinking if potentially if there are women out there who are thinking might want to run for independent or join the party. So um, that's that's our role as well, is that we're we're saying why okay. not have to think about it? You know, if you're a change maker. Um, it's an incredible chance, I think, to, to mm. make change for your local community. Mm. And, and just uh, talk a little bit more about cash. Uh, if people feel um, that they're disadvantaged, how could they run a campaign? Uh, they don't have a, an interest in a political party. They don't have any money as such. Uh, how can they stand for election? Yeah, great question. And look, we'll be running training this year specifically for um, anyone who wants to run as an independent candidate because we actually do have quite a culture here of electing uh, independents in Ireland as compared to sort of our European counterparts, which is which is great, you know. So we're, we're going to be putting on training specifically around financing and funding. Um, so I would advise people maybe just keep an eye on our website, womenforelection.ie, for that. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of... A lot of the time, it's not necessarily how to go about the fundraising or to organise something like that because, uh, you know, people have the wherewithal to do that. It's sometimes the, it's, the, it's the confidence to be able to ask people um, for money and believing that you are, you are worth it, you know, mm. and that it's, it's, it is a really worthy cause and you're a worthy cause yourself. Uh, and, yeah, and in that case, the fundraising is, is a very valuable uh, thing to be doing. All right. Uh, I'm going to read out a, a little bit of uh, the speech that Constance Markovitch uh, gave on uh, the 2nd of March 1922. Uh, it seems uh, very uh, modern uh, to listen to today. Hard to believe that it is 100 years old. Uh, but uh, I'll say good morning to you and thank you for joining us, Megan, on the programme. Uh, that's uh, Megan Riley, Training and Engagement Lead with Women for Election. Uh, and in 1922, when the doll was being asked to give women the vote, Constance Markovitch said, I rise to support this just measure for women because it is one of the things that I have worked for wherever I was since I was a young girl. My first realisation of tyranny came from some chance words spoken in favour of woman's suffrage and it raised the question of the tyranny it was intended to prevent. Women voicing their opinions publicly in the ordinary and simple manner of registering their votes at the polling booth. That was my first bite, you might say, at the apple of freedom and soon I got on to the other freedom. Freedom to the nation, freedom to the workers. This question of votes for women with the bigger thing, freedom for women, and opening of the professions to women has been one of the things that I have worked for and given my influence and time to procuring all my life. Whenever I got the opportunity, I've worked in Ireland. I've even worked in England to help the women to obtain their freedom. I would work for it anywhere as one of the crying wrongs of the world that women because of their sex, should be debarred from any position or any right that their brains entitled them a right to hold. In Ireland, we've been in a rather difficult and complicated position. It has been the habit of our tyrants over in England to use women's suffrage as a party cry. Each party, when it suited them, ran the suffrage question for all it was worth. But when they were in a position to help the cause of women's suffrage, the cry then was, oh, there's something more important before the nation. Now, I'm sorry to accuse Mr. Griffith, she said, and this is, of course, Arthur Griffith, who was president of the Dáil at the time. She said, I'm sorry to accuse Mr. Griffith of taking up that English attitude here in Ireland. Mr. Griffith supported the women's suffrage cause, and he never varied when women suffragists 
were throwing axes at his political opponent, Mr Redmond. Mr Griffith in those days spoke his opinions very freely as to women's suffrage. In those days, women felt that they did not want to seek representation at Westminster. Now, she said, I have a vote myself to send men and women to the Doyle, and I wish to have that privilege extended to the young women of Ireland whom I count in every way as my superiors with the glorious innocence and intuition of my youth. They fixed their eyes on high ideals. They had the education that was denied to me in my youth and they have proved their valour during the years of the terror in a way that we, the older women, never got a chance to do. And of course, uh, this is 1922, so this is shortly after uh, the rising and we're going into civil war time. So there was uh, also a very curious uh, comment from Constance Markovich at the time, uh, which seems very old-fashioned, while the rest of uh, this speech seems uh, very modern. She says, There was a dastardly remark about women in men's clothing made just now by the Chukta who spoke. And the comment that was made was by Joseph McGrath, TD at the time, uh, and uh, he was talking about men who supported the treaty. You wouldn't get away with this kind of language now. He says, I've more respect for the women in women's clothing than for the women in men's clothing. That is my view. And there are a number of them in the doll. Constance Markovich uh, said that was a, a dastardly thing to say. She said, I would challenge the men of honour, the other men who did not even require women's clothes to get out of the way when shots were being fired. And I would ask any man of the IRA to turn down the girls who stood by the men in the days of the fight for freedom and did what the women did in the gap of danger. It is for these girls that I speak today and it is the experience that these girls had in the last year that has brought to birth in them a great desire for this small privilege, the right of citizenship in Ireland. Many years of organisation, of speechifying and talk did not enable our franchise society of noble women to put these ideals into the young women's hearts. But it is the work they have done during the last couple of years where they have been dragged out of their shells and made to take place as citizens at the polling booths, helping at the elections and helping the men on the run that has put this desire into the hearts of young women. Uh, And she spoke about uh, the women who fought for this country and she said uh, uh, on uh, this occasion of the 2nd of March 1922 when the doll was asked to give women the vote today, she said, I would appeal here to the men of the IRA more than to any of the other men to see that justice is done to these young women and young girls who took a man's part in the terror. Anyway, I just thought that might have uh, been of interest to some of our, our listeners to coincide uh, with uh, that campaign which is being launched today, the More Women Day uh, by the Women for Election Group, which hopes to see a thousand women on the ticket in the 2024 local elections. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some of uh, the comments today. Paddy Duffy says now the executive has uh, been suspended. Sinn Féin shouldn't go back in because the DUP shouldn't be anywhere near government. They're not Democrats. They're a bigoted cult. John Andrade says I'm working. I haven't got a rise in 18 years. And Sean Healy wants a rise 
in social welfare payments. I think I'd be better off on social welfare, says John. Uh, text on WhatsApp from Shirley and Kilmainham Wood says, both of my sons have scoliosis. My oldest was left that long. He needed three surgeries. In 2015, I took my son to hospital in so much pain and refused to leave until they sorted him out. Thankfully, he then had his second surgery. My youngest child has a curve of 20 degrees. If he was seen in hospital in Temple Street now, he may just need bracing and it would cut back on children needing surgeries in some cases. She says the waiting times are just crazy. It's so unfair how children are being left in so much pain and to deteriorate so badly. Thanks for sharing that with us, Shirley. Tommy in touch too, saying he doesn't understand how uh, there can... Uh, be people uh, who have uh, different rules it would seem uh, than other people uh, I'm not sure really what that is uh, referring to uh, another person in touch about uh, the decision of uh, the court in Galway uh, saying Derek Leary acted with honour and uh, perhaps uh, should be reinstated thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us uh, this morning as well uh, somebody else saying uh, the judgement uh, from Galway has to be respected and uh, if people did no wrong they shouldn't have been punished and they should be put back into their positions. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. That has to be our programme for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie 